Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Pastor Dan, and it was recorded on Sunday, January 16th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at podcast at faithbridge.org. If you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Dan. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Welcome to Faith Ridge, whether you're here in the live service, in our communion service, or if you're coming to us online, we're glad that you're worshiping with us today. As Pastor Ken said, we're continuing in our uh, series looking at the book of Luke, and today we're going to be in chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a fellow who, for my money anyway, is uh, one of the most interesting characters in the whole Bible. We're going to be looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a very important person in Jesus' life. Uh, He just happened to be Jesus' cousin, but he also would play a vital role in the launching of Jesus' ministry. So, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Luke really wanted to let you know when he was talking about here, pretty precise. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He'd locked John up in prison. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be in your house and to lift up the name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray now as we turn our attention to your word, your spirit would come to be our teacher, just as you promised, and to guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A while back, I was watching a documentary that focused on all of the effort that is necessary for the President of the United States to get from Washington, D.C. to any place on the planet he might travel. And in a word, I was astonished at all that is necessary for him to travel. A good three to six months before he ever arrives in a given location, the Secret Service go and they are scoping everything out. They gain permission to clear the airspace when Air Force One arrives. They go through every inch of the motorcade that the president will drive and make sure everything is copacetic. They approach known bad guys, wherever they are, and let them know, hey, we we know who you are, and we've got our eyes on you. So, no funny business. When the day finally comes for the president to make the trip, Of course, he flies on Air Force One, but six other aircraft accompany him on a trip. Those six aircraft carry uh, additional security, uh, various types of personnel, cargo, all of the things that the president could possibly need for a given trip. And one of those six aircraft is a backup Air Force One, and it is always parked at an unknown secret airport so that if the original Air Force One is somehow uh, out of service, there's still a way for the president to get out of there and be on his way. There are always uh, three rings of defense, security around the president, three perimeters. You've got the police on the outside, then you've got the Secret Service in the second, and then the Presidential Protection Division right there with the president. It takes thousands of people, thousands of hours, thousands upon thousands of dollars for the President of the United States to go anywhere. I don't know what it's like for him to run down to 7-Eleven, but to travel anywhere in the world, it is a big, big deal. Of course, this is nothing new, though. This sort of thing has been going on for thousands of years, obviously not to the extent that it does today, but even back in Jesus' day and before, whenever a king was going to travel to a particular location, he would send out heralds ahead of him announcing his arrival, letting the people know the king is coming, you need to get ready. And their primary responsibility back in those days was to make sure that the roads were ready for the king because the king, of course, would be bringing a huge entourage. And most roads back in those days were not paved, 
Very, very few were paved, only the main arteries. Most roads were really footpaths. That's how people typically got around with these. Footpath, maybe a cart path. But if the king with his entourage was going to be passing through town, then the road needed to be repaired. And typically the locals were conscripted into that service to fill the ditches, to remove the clutter, to make sure the king could get through. I don't imagine all of them were terribly happy about being conscripted into that service, but after all, hey, the king was coming to town. When Jesus, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, began his public ministry, a herald was sent ahead of him as well to announce his arrival. And that herald was this fellow, John the Baptist. That was his job, to announce that Jesus was coming, that Jesus was about to begin his ministry. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years earlier, foretold the work that John would do. In verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness... Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Yes, John was the herald who came ahead of Jesus. But John could have cared less about the roads. That was not his concern at all. No, John was concerned with something infinitely more important. John was concerned with the human heart. John was saying to his listeners, the king is coming, and he is beyond your imagination. He's unlike any person you have ever seen. He's so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. But he is coming, and you need to be ready. Your heart's need to be ready because he's coming. Your hearts need to be at a place where he can live, where he can take up residence, where he can abide with you. And there is work that you need to begin to do to get ready for the arrival of this king. Now, John was known for a lot of things in his life, but tact was not one of them. This is not a guy you would want to send on a diplomatic mission anywhere. Because when the crowds came out to be baptized, and you know, this is a friendly crowd. These are people that are for John. What does he say to them? You brood of vipers? Who told you to flee the coming wrath? Repent and produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Can you imagine Pastor Ken at one of our baptismal services standing up? You brood of vipers! Can't imagine that would do a whole lot for church growth. But John knew what he was doing. You see, I think John understood very well his time was limited. He knew that he had enemies in high places. And he needed to get the word out. And so he wasn't messing around. He was just going to speak his mind straightforwardly. And the message that he had to say was, the king is coming, and you need to be ready. And the way you get ready is to repent of your sin, and then 
have fruit in your life that demonstrates your repentance. Now, the word repentance simply means to turn around, to go the other way. If I'm walking north and I repent of that, I begin to walk south. When we repent of our sins, we're saying, no, not going anymore, uh, there anymore, not going to do that, changing direction, leaving that behind. Why was John so hung up on this repentance business? Because Jesus cannot abide sin. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is holy. And Jesus cannot abide sin. Jesus cannot occupy a heart that is filled with sin, that is focused on sin, that is filled with unrepentant sin. It's not that he doesn't want to, it's that he can't. Holiness and sinfulness do not go together, oil and water. Some years ago, uh, on one of my trips to India, I traveled to the town of Shimla up in northern India. Now, I, I have pretty well traveled the length of that nation. I've been there over 20 times, and I've stayed in all kinds of different accommodations, from the really, really nice to the really, really not so nice and everything in between. But nothing could prepare me for what I was going to experience in Shimla. When I arrived in town, I had just completed uh, over 30 hours of travel, and so I was beat. My host greeted me there at the train station, gave me a warm welcome, and said, we're on our way to the hotel. I know you're tired. We've got a wonderful place for you to stay. Uh, it's a hotel that my brother-in-law owns. That should have been a clue right there. Cut rate. Well, we get to the hotel, and uh, I go in the room, and I notice, yeah, it's, it's a little unkempt. I mean, the carpet looks like maybe it hasn't been vacuumed in a, four or five years. Uh, the furniture's kind of shabby, but I thought, hey, it's just for a week. I can deal with it for a week. Flop down on the bed, looking up at the ceiling, and there I see not two or three flies, but two or three dozen flies. And when they become aware of me, they are swirling around. And I make my way into the bathroom just to escape. And that is when the odor hits me like a ton of bricks. Poor plumbing and poor fixtures mean lots of sewer gas. I came staggering back to the flies I said to my host, I said, I am so sorry, and I do not want to seem ungrateful, but I just can't do this. Flies maybe, but flies and sewer gas, thankfully, they graciously found me other accommodations. In a similar way, Jesus cannot abide in a heart filled with the stench of sin. Greed, malice, lust, anger. And sin is a stench. It's the stench of death because Scripture is clear. 
Sin is nothing to be winked at. Sin is nothing to ignore. The wages of sin is death. It is enslaving. And the destination is always death. In fact, sin cost Jesus his life. He died to eradicate sin. And so he cannot come and abide in a heart filled with unrepentant sin. Something must be done. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, I thought the gospel was a gospel of grace. I thought there was, you know, I thought it was a free gift. And the answer is yes, it is. There's nothing that you have to earn. As Dallas Willard says, though, Jesus is always opposed to earning. He is never opposed to effort. And it takes effort to live the Christian life. John was communicating to his listeners and he is communicating to us today. The single most important thing you can do in your life is to establish an environment in your heart where you can have an ongoing, life-changing relationship with Jesus. Nothing is more important than that because that is what is going to last through all eternity. And in order to create that environment, you have to recognize the sin within, repent of it, And prepare the way for Jesus to be present. And you have to show fruit of that repentance. Your life has to demonstrate that, yeah, you really are moving away from those things. John's listeners understood that. In verse 10, they immediately cry out to him, what what do we do then? What does that mean? And John gets real practical. Those of you that have more stuff than you need, clothes and food, find those who don't and give them some. Those of you that are tax collectors, just collect what you're supposed to. Don't take anything for yourself. Soldiers, don't bully, don't extort. He gets down to the nitty-gritty of life, where people live, because that's where sin is, where we live. And as I read those sorts of things that John was saying about fruit production, I got to wondering, what might John say to us today? And by us, I mean the church in 2022, Faithbridge Church and the larger church, particularly the American church church. I think he would definitely have some things to say. Among them, I think John would say, you need to repent of your distractions. You are a culture that is caught up in a net of distractions. You have given yourself over to your phones, your laptops, and your TVs to various kinds of entertainment. You know a little bit about everything. But you don't know about the most important thing. You could probably wax eloquent on any number of topics because of the barrage of information that comes your way and your willingness to dive headlong into it. But what could you tell me about Jesus? What could you tell me firsthand about Jesus? 
about your relationship with him. Our lives are so short. I'm going to be 60 this year. Yesterday, I was 20. Those of you that are 20, I'm sure, are thinking, you're just old. I'm telling you, you're going to blink. How are you spending those days that God has given you? How are you spending those hours and those minutes? Are they invested in things that will be here today and gone tomorrow? Utterly worthless knowledge? Utterly worthless endeavors and pursuits? Or are you investing your time and your energy and your focus into that which will last? I think John would say to us, it's time to repent of your distractions. And what would the fruit of that repentance look like? Among other things, I think it would look like a worshiping people. A people who have given themselves over, not to their phones, but to Jesus in public and private worship. Who seek Him in every way that they can through prayer and His Word and fasting and other spiritual disciplines so that they're growing in their knowledge of Him and they're growing in their relationship with Him. And they're learning how to leave sin behind and become the man or woman that Jesus has called and created them to be. I think John would call on us to repent of our divisions. I think he would be mortified at the state of community in the American church because we have divided ourselves up into as many categories as you can think of. We've got white Christians and black Christians. We've got Republican Christians and Democratic Christians. We've got liberals and conservatives. We've got vaccinated and unvaccinated. And I think Jesus looks at his body and weeps. I think Jesus says to us, you're not any of those things first. You are mine first. And it's time you got over these divisions. Disagreements? Sure. It's a part of family life. Divisions? No. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It will fall. And church, if we're going to make an impact in this world, if we're going to change the world for Jesus... It won't be because we're fighting with each other. It won't be because we're being brats on social media. No, it'll be because we have locked arms with our brothers and sisters in a common cause to bring the greatest news that the world has ever heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would the fruit of that repentance look like? Different from things are now. An environment of love and patience and understanding. A, a willingness to seek to understand before opening our mouths. Focusing on what really matters instead of what separates us. I thought it was interesting that on this Sunday I'm preaching on the prophet John the Baptist it's the weekend we celebrate the life of another prophet, a modern-day prophet, Martin Luther King. 
A man who, like all the rest of us, sure had his faults. But he came preaching a message that the church and the world needs to hear. A message of unity. As he said earlier, that one of Jesus' persistent prayers for the church was that they would be unified even as we are unified, Father. I think John would call upon us to repent of our lack of concern for the lost. Because of our distractions and because of our divisions and probably because of many other reasons, laziness and apathy and who knows what all else, we don't even know who the lost are. Much less do we care about them. You know, the only thing that Jesus commissioned the whole church to do was to take the gospel into all the world. Preach my gospel to every creature. Teach them what I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our responsibility. How are we doing? Don't think we're making a passing grade. What is the fruit of that repentance? It's people on their knees, first of all, praying, God, give me a love in my heart like your love for lost people. Give me eyes to see them. Help me understand what they're going through so that I can give a compassionate and compelling witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, burden my heart for lost people like your heart is burdened. I think if all of us took that responsibility seriously, we wouldn't be able to find a place to sit on Sunday mornings because we would be telling so many people about Jesus. Prepare ye the way, John said, for the king is coming. Don't worry about your roads, worry about your heart. And the way you worry about your heart is by repenting and then demonstrating fruit of that repentance. Now, the sort of things I've been talking about, you could apply across the board. I think they're the kinds of things that John would address to our culture at large. But I know that in my heart and in all of your hearts, there are individual sorts of things we need to repent of. Secret sins, struggles, addictions, behaviors that we so wish were not a part of our life, but there they are. Some behaviors that we're actually glad they're a part of our life, but they are completely contrary to the gospel. We need to deal with those too. And it's not like Jesus wants to come in and take up residence just because he can do you know why Jesus wants to take up residence in your heart? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he knows that the only way to life, to freedom, is through him. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
But if the Son of Man sets you free, you shall be free indeed. I don't know about you, but I want to be free. I want to be the man that God created me to be. I want to be the husband and the father and the pastor whose heart is clean, who keeps short accounts, who yearns to be like Jesus and at any given moment has a heart where Jesus can feel right at home. He wants to take up residence so that he can set us free from sin, but he also wants to set us free to serve. The essence of sin is selfishness, to be inwardly turned and focused. From its very beginning, over 20 years ago, Faithbridge has been an outwardly focused church. We've preached it, we've lived it, we've taught it. And one of the ways you know you have repented of your sin is that it's no longer all about you. It's about others. It's about serving others. That's one of the reasons why Faith Bridge does things like this. You know, if we're going to get good at something, we've got to practice. And if we're going to get good at serving, we've got to do it. Church, home, work, community, wherever. That's why your staff works all the time to create opportunities for all of us to serve. And I so hope when this service is over that you will make your way to the East Atrium and find a place where you can begin to serve, where you can begin to show forth evidence of repentance. We stand on the brink of a new year. Opportunities stretch out before us that have never been ours before. Church, what are we going to do with those? As individuals and as a church together, will we do all that God is calling us to do? Will we become the men and women that He created us to be? There's no reason why we shouldn't. And the pathway there is to repent and to show forth fruit from that repentance. To close our service, I'm I'm, going to ask everybody if you would just stand right where you are. Jesus wants to abide in our hearts. And so I'm going to ask you to place your hand over your heart. And I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to ask God to come and cleanse us of our sin and to help us to repent. And as you pray with me and you deal with the things in your own life that need to be dealt with, take your hand off of your heart and just give them to Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we stand before you as a people 
who need you. We confess we so easily give in to sin. We so easily make wrong choices. We so easily disappoint you. But thank you, Lord, that your love never stops. There's never a moment when you are not yearning to take up residence in our hearts. And so, Lord, won't you cleanse us now? Won't you heal us? By your grace, won't you help us to repent? We open our hands to you, Jesus. And we ask you to take our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Give us hearts that love you and want to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.